0: This is Tasting
1: Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's getting close to Valentine's Day, folks, so things are going to get spicy on Tasting Together. I'm your host, Maroki Tong, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andre Prue.
2: I like what you did there. (laughs) Spicy in Valentine's Day? That is incredible. (laughs) You're setting an expectation, though. How lucky Eric, your partner Eric, must be, for what you've got planned for Valentine's Day this year.
1: Yes, we are going to try and go through our cupboard of spices uh, in our home cooking. Right on. The spice that none of you expected me to bring up.
2: (laughs) Well, you and I were having a conversation while we were uh, trying to figure out what to talk about this week. And um, there's stuff that's been popping up online a little bit that turned into a bigger discussion about... Spicy food, but also a little bit about culture. Um I've been telling everyone on the planet to watch Ted Lasso. And like there's a great scene in the first season where Jason Sudeikis' his character, Ted Lasso, goes to, um I think it's an Indian restaurant, uh, but it, it's definitely a, a South Asian restaurant because the limo driver that picks him up from the airport invites him to it. And he tells him to cook him the food like he would at home. And it's just, it's become a bit of a trope in Hollywood and I think at at restaurants at large that, I'm putting this in air quotes, but white people spicy is a thing. And I saw this tweet pop up that first off made me laugh, but also just made me wonder about where white people spicy comes from because... It, it's uh, from an account, um, not a major account, but the tweet says, I think the white people don't like spicy food thing mostly applies to middle to upper class whites because every redneck I know buys hot sauces with names like blank, whole, blanker, and blank. You can fill in the blanks here, but basically very aggressive names for very spicy hot sauces. And I had to take a look at my pantry and realize, oh, I have all the hot sauces that this tweet was referencing. So, Maroki, we're going to unpack a little bit about spicy food and just how it applies to culture and I guess a little bit about whether or not we can bust the myth that white people don't like spice.
1: Yeah, I know white people or American people, I guess, could say, because I think my my sister, who is Chinese, will fully admit that she doesn't really eat spicy food in which we will affectionately call her a banana. Yellow (laughs) on the outside, one on the inside. For those of you who don't know, don't ever actually use that joke if you're not Asian. Um, But I I think like American folks, uh, North Americans and Western culture might have been the butt of a lot of jokes. I remember my friend showed me a screenshot of food he was trying to order from an Indian restaurant. And they had things that said, Zero spice, American mild, American medium, American spicy, then Indian mild, Indian medium, and onwards. And I was like, there's not even overlap between American spicy and Indian mild. <laughs> but I I think similar to you, I, I did see that tweet and I had a good laugh about it. But I realized that there were a number of hot sauces. That I never really enjoyed that much. And I am someone who ate spicy food growing yeah. up. And I thought I had a high tolerance for spice. And I remember it was one of those moments where I realized that, you know, the way spice is created is extremely different and can yes. impact different cultures. Now, I saw a tweet thread where they spoke about how it's simply impossible to prepare someone who grew up on chilies from Asia for the sheer violence and aggression levels of habanero for the first time. Yeah. And I talked about how, you know, like Asian or Southeast Asian chilies knock on the door, they smile and make polite conversation, and then they mug you an hour into the visit, and then yours, aka American or habanero spice, down the door, yeah, and barge and screaming, I'm home.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I have a cousin who very proudly cooks with, uh, scorpion peppers. Like he makes a chili, like a massive pot of chili and throws one scorpion pepper in it. It is not polite. Like it is not a polite way to, to eat spice, but you and I had a a discussion of just about how, you know, the, the way spice hits your mouth is very different depending on country of origin, right? Um, I have a friend who's, um, she's Guyanese, and her aunt makes this very famous uh, hot sauce within the family, but I find it hits very hard, very similar to the hot sauce that we talked about at the very beginning, the The white people hot sauce where they're vinegar based and made with, um, geez, I don't even know what pepper she uses because they feel like they're way too spicy to be Scotch bonnets, but like one or two drops will be turn your we'll set your plate on fire and set your mouth on fire
1: mm-hmm. and that was where i learned the kind of dip the the cultural differences between creating spice i grew up on a lot of szechuan spice and a lot of chili oils and those are you know what they call like palate numbing kind of develop a yes numbness on the tongue there's you- a bit of earthiness to it I think it doesn't hit as aggressively because it is being suspended in oil.
2: You
3: know,
1: and I can eat that for days. But if you put that vinegar base on my palate, it just it just slaps me.
2: I have to tell you, the first time I really cooked with Sichuan peppercorn, like I love making mapo tofu in my house and I discovered Sichuan peppercorn. It's just like for me, it wasn't spicy enough because I was expecting that I'm home, like kicking down the doors And I must have put like a a half tablespoon of Szechuan pepper, fresh Szechuan peppercorn in my bowl. And halfway through the meal, I realized I couldn't feel my throat. And I actually had to Google it because I thought there was something medically wrong with me because no one told me that Szechuan peppercorn will numb your mouth.
1: Mm -hmm. My partner, Eric, handles spices quite well, but he really doesn't handle the numbing. So... He can eat the vinegar spices more uh, better than me and I can handle Szechuan spices better than him. Now, I think there's a temperature element to Andre. I uh-huh. think about Korean food and a lot of mm-hmm. the soups that they have and, you know, a lot of the soups with kimchi in it or they put spices in it. Do you think like when something's really, really hot too, it can raise the, I guess, quote unquote, temperature of the spiciness too?
2: I think it's one of these things where we talk about it it creeping up on you before you know smashing your house uh it definitely can help mask the the amount of spice because korean is one of those cuisines where it definitely creeps up on you and by the time the spice is really hitting hard it's too late you've already you've already jumped into the deep end of the pool you better know how to swim
1: mm-hmm. but there's also an interesting element with korean food too because you know kimchi is fermented and that's obviously one of their big staple sides and there's something to be said about you get that spice, um, but you get this kind of umami-ness that helps change the quality of the spice as well. And maybe I should take a quick moment to also say that there's a lot more kimchi out there than that kind of red cabbage that we're used to seeing in markets all over the GTA. When I traveled to Korea, I learned very fast that there's a lot of kimchi out there and not all of it spicy.
2: Yeah. Um, actually, there's a really great cookbook called Koreatown uh, where the author actually talks about how in his house, um, kimchi is a verb that you can kimchi something, kimchi carrots, kimchi zucchini, that that he has a recipe for a kimchi base and you can literally turn anything, virtually anything into a kimchi. Uh, But we're getting to the end of the segment. I, I do think we need to talk a little bit about Indian spicy as well. And I think that's one of the things where I love Indian spicy just because how a lot of the dishes are crafted. There's a dairy element to them. Like a lot of the meats are marinated in yogurts or you'll get sauces that are made with coconut milk. And it's just, I guess, kind of a velvet glove way to have the spice creep up on you because the way the ingredients work is it's just like we've talked about with wine they're being balanced but having an element to help I guess mitigate the spiciness is something that just brings some wonderful balance to these dishes.
1: And after the break we're going to speak with an expert in Indian spice. Abhishek Arun is the owner of Calgully and he went from opening restaurants in Asia to one in Midtown Toronto and in Markham. We're hoping he can help us unpack whether or not white people spicy quote-unquote is a myth.
2: That's after the break on Tasting Together 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news.
0: Today's talk.
1: 640 Toronto. Whether I'm going to eat a spice that creeps up on me and then punches me in the face or one that smashes in the door, we're digging into all things spicy on Tasting Together. Andre, so when it comes to eating spice, what is your preference?
2: I really don't have one. Um, I like exploring uh, culture through cuisine and you know I've often wondered whether or not the heat factor in a dish affects the authenticity of it like if you tone down certain ingredients it makes it less true to the, the recipe like I, I can't imagine serving like a mild Frank's red hot sauce with just cayenne pepper like it would just be vinegar and and pepper flavor right. Uh, but That's I awesome. thought we would dive into this with one of the owners of Cowgully, fantastic restaurant in Midtown Toronto. And I'm hoping he would help us maybe unpack this discussion about the difference between Asian and North American heat as we unpacked last segment. Uh, the owner is Abhishek Arun. Abhishek, thanks for joining us.
3: My pleasure. So, um you raised a good point here. I think it depends on uh, what the restaurant owner wants to serve. We decided to keep our spice levels the same it doesn't matter what ethnicity we were serving or are serving rather so and that um, went pretty well with us and the success is ongoing where uh, only when a customer again, no matter what the ethnicity is requests a certain spice level to be bumped up, then we offer that kind of spice level. Um, otherwise uh, we are more about flavors because if you overpower a dish with too much chili or hot peppers uh, it kind of ruins it even for the indian population or them um, stuff like that yeah
1: hmm. prior to the break we were talking about the difference between asian heat and north american heat and do you find that there is differences in how it's approached a spice like let's say you know the spicy habanero sauce versus a spicy um you know curry from south india
3: oh that's uh that's a very good question um it used to be like that before many many years ago but now the lines are blurred uh people are you'll be shocked to see how white americans are uh, their spice tolerance has gone up so at times it's very it's not very unusual to see um a caucasian customer walk in and say i want a very spicy chicken tikka masala so i or an indian customer say please don't make the food too spicy so again lines are blurring it all depends on the person we try to analyze the typical stereotypes um, but we failed so <laughs> it's just that we ask and we, we, we uh, the, the american versus asian heat concept is the lines are blurring uh, people are changing their spice tolerance and appetites, yeah. Are
1: you nope. putting habanero sauce in your curry? <laughs>
3: the, the the thing is, habanero sauce is an extreme spice level versus the Indian spice. So um, sometimes habanero spice, it's, it's not suited for our Indian uh, palate, because uh, the cuisine rather, because it overpowers all the other flavors which are there, because we have tons and thousands of spices there. So it could probably do well in a Caribbean or a Guyanese curry, but in an Indian curry, it won't do well. So we kind of keep that extreme spice level out. But if an American wants an extreme heat in our curries, we add more like the green chili hot peppers or the red chili hot peppers, which are fresh.
2: Okay, Mm. so maybe we're asking the wrong question here because I I think it's, um, we're sort of systematically, you know, going through our our head about what culture means in Canada, right? Because now we're at the point where a lot of people who are not white are second, third, fourth, fifth generation Canadians. And Abhishek, I know your family, you guys have restaurants uh, over in Asia as well. Do you think that cooking for Canadians, regardless of the color of their skin, is different than cooking for your restaurants in Asia? And I know you've brought a lot of your chefs over from Asia to cook at Calgary.
3: This is such a nice question. Absolutely no difference. Um, that's the whole reason our initial hesitation was because all our chefs are from back from our other restaurants in Asia. Um, we They don't even know what's the Canadian palate for spice because they came right out of the kitchen there into the kitchen here. So they literally kept the spice level the same and it's working. So uh, I think, again, it doesn't make a difference. It, it, it depends on what you want to serve. If you make a dish good, even if it lacks... Um, extreme heat people will accept it as long as there's a kick to it it doesn't have to be extremely hot to make it uh, interesting that's the the beauty uh, of Indian food I guess Uh, and unfortunately a lot of Indian restaurants kind of bank on this spicy greasy curry thing which it doesn't need to Um, so yep I don't know if I've answered your question but that's probably what I have to say (laughs)
2: I just heard some passive aggressive shots fired at some other restaurants, <laughs> regular Indian restaurants in North America. It sounds like think people need to step up their game a little bit in terms of, uh, in terms of getting balance. I mean, you said the word balance earlier and I think it's just so important that like balance is an approach for, we talk about balance with wine, talk about balance with food and balance with heat is just like this whole idea of balance and cooking is just so important. Don't you think Maroki?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I think one of the interesting things you mentioned too, Abhishek is, um, how, you know, you said if you were increasing the spice level for your curries, you would bring in more green chili spices, but habanero wouldn't necessarily be a fit. So I guess what I'm hearing in some ways is perhaps fusion cuisine is maybe not the best way to approach your style of Indian cooking because it kind of like pulls too far away
3: from the origins of the food. Absolutely, Amiroki, okay, you've nailed it again. Uh Sometimes what, um restaurants which do fusion cuisine don't understand is that uh, we lose the essence of the original dish somewhere along the way if we can keep that essence intact then it's good but adding a habanero just imagine a chicken tikka masala or a biryani with habanero peppers all those other spices the beautiful cardamom cinnamon and all those 10 other 30 other spices which are which go in a dish they will all be overpowered and all you can taste is just just that tingling that that burning sensation on your on your tongue and then it'll overpower everything and you'll not enjoy Indian food then. So that's what we've tried to achieve is not bland, insipid food, but at the same time, give uh, people who love Indian food that fine balance, which is so important as Andre said.
2: Now, I I know the word authenticity is something that's really being unpacked <laughs> in, in the culinary world, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of discussions around like what like what authentic food really means, because once a food leaves its country of of origin, it takes the influence of where it comes. And, you know, Canada draws its influence from a lot of places. But for a lot of these recipes that you're bringing directly from India to midtown Toronto, do you think that if you were really mucking around with the heat levels of a recipe, it affects the authenticity? You know, like I said earlier, a Frank's Red Hot sauce with no heat is something I can't imagine. Do you think that would apply to uh, some of the recipes you're talking about as well?
3: absolutely Uh, yes and no a thing like a simple dal tadka which is lentils uh, which is eaten with just rice or roti or something like that if you increase or decrease heat in that it doesn't have much impact because you don't need lentils for the spice you eat it like a side dish or something like that, like you crave comfort food, like lentils and rice, so you eat that. But if you eat like a biryani or you eat like a Goan fish curry, which is from the coast of Goa, the coastal province of Goa, it needs a certain level of heat in it because if you don't add some hot peppers in it, Chilies in it, or some hot spices like garam masala. We call it in it uh, in the biryani. Sorry, just to be specific, it doesn't give it that authentic taste or the taste which the recipe kind of carried for generations and what it's known for.
1: I think this is a really good reminder to folks out there that curry is not one spice and that it's comprised of you know dozens and dozens of. Uh, spices that's been mixed together to create all the dynamic flavors that exist in Indian cuisine. So PSA out there, folks.
3: <laughs> oh, Sorry, I'm okay to cut you, but this is really important again that you raise this point. What people, a lot of cultures, at least North Americans, they know, but a lot of cultures, you're new to Indian food, like Hispanics, they think Curry is a powder. They don't know that yeah. we don't in India have a curry powder. It's a it's an invention of the West where curry powder came for convenience. But when Indians look at curry powder, they don't like it at all. They just throw it away. Because we make, curry is such a subjective word. We make different kinds of saute, stir fries even. It's not just liquid gravies, you know? And we make our own spices. So curry, is, it's it's to be bashed. There's not nothing called curry. There's no one powder like curry powder. It's been made here for ease of use. <laughs>
2: So yes. anyone looking to get their curry fix and learn a little bit more about, I guess, proper heat now that we've, I think we've busted the myth a little bit, Meroki, haven't we?
1: Very much so. I think it, you know, the moment we started chatting, all the questions that we had prepared just went right, right out, out the, the window. window. Oh yeah, completely.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Abhishek Arun. You are the owner of Gully, which is uh, between Davisville and Eglinton on Young, an amazing restaurant. Try the biryani. you, It will change your life.
3: Thank you. It, it will. My be- nice
1: favorite, and and I believe here, um, there's a second location in Markham
3: too. Yeah, the second bigger location in Markham with a banqueting hall for weddings, etc. So, yep, yeah, come by and enjoy.
2: Coming up after the break, we are going to tell you about a great way to take part in Black History Month and drink some wine with a wonderful guest who'll be joining us.
1: So stick around. We'll be right back on six forty Toronto.
0: You're listening to Tasting Together, Toronto's News. Today's Talk, six
3: forty, Toronto.
0: Hey,
2: Maroki, did you get a chance to look at that TikTok that I sent you?
1: Yes, about how all food is magically paired with wine, but yep. not really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I actually just love the punchline of the video. It was one of those things where it was really funny, but makes you think. Because when you walk into like virtually every fine restaurant in you know, it's certainly in North America, certainly in, in Europe that they always have these meticulous food and wine pairings. And this TikToker posed the question, why is it always wine? One day I would like to walk into a fine restaurant and have the sommelier have gone down to the Seven Eleven and been like, you know what? This like duck foie gras, whatever, is going to be paired with Mountain Dew Blueberry Blast. Enjoy it.
1: <laughs> maybe it would be like a really, I don't know. Maybe. I, I'm digging it and I think this actually is a really great segue into our next segment because we're talking about you know in our last segment we were talking about spicy food and spicy eats and one of the things that you know is a you know something that we are trying to kind of um, Change the paradigm on with regards to food and wine pairings is not necessarily pairing wine with always like fine French cuisine or fine Italian cuisine and we have someone joining us, who's kind of made it her mission to do just that. And we have Beverly Crandon joining us. She's a certified sommelier founder of the Spice Food and Wine Group. And she has an awesome event coming up this month that I'd love to dive deeper into. So hey, Beverly, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Now, I, I guess we can just go right into the questions. You have an event that's coming up. I believe it's on February 15th. Am I correct? That is correct. It's Wednesday, February 15th. So
4: not not a lot of time left.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. But you know what? That all, and there's always going to be someone who wants something to do on Wednesday. And Wednesday's Wine Wednesday. So what's a better time than to go to a wine event than on Wine Wednesday? But you um, know
4: how else I'm selling this? Listen, listen. Valentine's Day, okay? On the 14th like you don't want to do the same old anymore you want something new and that's why coming down to our event on the 15th makes a ton of sense
0: turn valentine's so, into an,
2: turn come val- down turn valentine's into a multi-day event why not
1: <laughs> absolutely well the event's called black grapes and i would love for you to share what is the meaning behind black grapes right yeah you know um
4: in wine, wine speak, uh, you'll hear a lot of winemakers obviously use the term black grapes to talk about um, dark pigmented grapes that go into making red wine. Uh, but black grapes for us on February 15th is all about celebrating black winemakers and their wines. And also some of the other black voices in wine that we have um, uh, to celebrate here in Ontario. Uh, for example, some of the wines that are going to be there are from, and I can count them on my one hand, uh, black, fully Black-owned uh, wine importing agencies. So we've also included them that evening as well.
2: Beverly, I know a lot of people who don't know you, but I've had a chance to know you for a little while now, and you definitely throw a lot of really fantastic events. What can people expect when they get out to Stacked Market on February 15th?
4: yeah so uh we're at stack five to nine and we've done it as a drop-in right so it's a walk around tasting we'll have a bunch of booths set up where you can try um wines from different winemakers black winemakers uh a global selection of them because we only have one fully owned winery winemaker here in uh, Canada that is black. So I couldn't just have a walk around tasting with just one wine. Uh, so we had to go global, but it's wonderful. We've got some great, great, great expressions of some of the classic grapes that are going to be there. Um, in addition to that, we have a bunch of our food exhibitors who we work with for our Spring Into Spice outdoor festival. Um, so we've selected three of them to also sh- uh, bring some food. So we've got boucan restaurant, which is a Haitian restaurant they will have some small bites there. We have uh, flavors of Guyana. They're going to have some small bites there as well that you can try. Um, and also, Chef Adisa Glasgow from 3030, a Trinidadian chef, um, will also have some of his lovely eats on site. Um, and then there's more. There's more than just food and wine. We also oh. have a super super talented young artist named trinity watson she's going to be doing a live painting in one of the rooms that we've got set up there at stacked market um and also showcasing some of her other art pieces so people can they can you know they eat a little bit they can taste a little bit they can walk over to see trinity and her painting it's a a lot to do while you're there
1: you know as as since we're like since we air the show near dinner time i am getting really really hungry listening to you talk and um i think it's interesting that you you know speak about how canada really only has one black you know fully owned uh black winemaker and black owned winery and you know if you kind of extended it on a global scale to include you know agencies or agents or creators and i think it really just goes to show though sort of what the breadth of working in wine looks like so people can get a chance to see what black professionals in wine are across all these different avenues um you discussed some of the wine pairings that you had which uh some of the foods that are available which is really awesome because i think so many wine pairings are centralized around european foods like wine and pasta wine and french food and out of you know all the foods that you have listed some what's there what are some of your favorite pairings with some of those cuisines and you know if someone was there and we we're like okay I want to eat something from flavors of Guyana what wines would I want to pair with that you know it's funny you should say
4: that uh because flavors of Guyana they're bringing this this snack food that I love as a Guyanese growing up as a child I, I would go goo goo gaga over this thing it's called Polori and the best way to describe it is that it's a savory uh looking timbit <laughs> right yeah. but it's Super delicious, and I love pairing Pelori with cool climate Pinot Noir. And so, oh. people coming down will get a chance to do that. They'll be able to do that. Um, Bukan is bringing also uh, this fresh fritter as well. Um, and what goes really well with that? Because I've tried it. Uh, Steve has got a wonderful sparkling wine that's going to be their folklore—a killer, killer pairing. What you know, I must say this in terms of what one of my favorite pairings are, but I don't know if the chef Adisa Glasgow is bringing any curry. But people seem to underestimate how well doing same sameness when you're doing a pairing goes. And I say that because you know, curry's got clove and nutmeg, spice, like those types of spices in it that are very, very strong. And the same thing you get when a red wine has been, you know, seen some time with oak, right? Is there a, if there's a percentage of new oak in there, um, you get those same flavors. And so I enjoy taking um, like uh, Cabernet Sauvignon that's seen some oak from South Africa and putting that with some curry. And we will have a Cabside from South Africa there at the event, but I don't think, I don't know. I think one of them are bringing, is bringing curry. I don't know if it's flavors of Guyana or Chef Edith of Glasgow. So people will be able to try that as well.
2: I always find it fascinating to hear how you put uh, these wines and the foods together. I, I know, as Maroki said, like we think about wine and food generally in a traditional sense. And I think most wine professionals are a little bit guilty of really focusing on the European history of how these things come together. When people come to your events, what is the response from people? Do you find people are surprised when they see that wine can go with food, maybe outside of what they normally would taste?
4: Yes. And I, uh, and then I feel like we've done our job today. We can go home. (laughs) I remember doing um, a media dinner and I did the same curry with a South African Cabernet Sauvignon blend. And uh, there were two very influential people in wine who were at that dinner and they turned to me and said, are you sure about this? You may read this on, on the menu that this is appearing. And I said, I'm absolutely sure. And when the two of them had that, uh, they had they came back and said, this was so good. I never thought that these two would go together. And that that's it, right? Like, you just need to explore and try new things. But everything is going to work. I mean, there are times here where I've got, like, a dish and I have five wines lined up and I'm trying to figure it out. And sometimes... Four out of five are really bad, and I have only one winner. Um, but you just have to try things and never say no, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I literally did an Instagram reel where I think I was trying to pair some Chinese New Year sweets with um, with wine, and I thought at the end of it, I was like, maybe I made a mistake. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the thing, right? All these menus are always thoughtfully curated, and someone had to sit behind the scenes to having some trial and error before presenting it. And I think there's just... It's just, like, too close-minded to not say there isn't an opportunity to pair wine with cuisines outside of what our normal parameters or teachings have
2: us. Well, and it's the best thing about working with a sommelier, working with a talented sommelier who's curated really great food and really great wine. Keeping in mind that everybody tastes things a little bit different, the wine's going to be good the food's going to be good. If you taste it together and it doesn't feel quite right to you, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's nothing saying that you can't drink the glass of wine first and then have the food or have the food and then the wine. And it's a uh, trial and error and mixing it up. Beverly, how can people get tickets to your event?
4: Um, if they go on to uh, beverlycrandon.com, uh, there's a link right there to get tickets to Black Black Grapes. So.
1: Thank you so much, Beverly. For those of you who are interested, make sure you check her website out, beverlycrandon.com, to see black grapes on February 15th at Stack Market from 5 to 9.
2: And coming back from the break, we are going to do a very special report getting you ready for your Valentine's Day about wine and chocolate. no you can't wait to hear about the report that's been put together for this.
1: I absolutely can't wait, so stick around, folks. We are tasting together on 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's talk. 640 Toronto.
2: It's the time of the show when we bring in Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom. Danny,
0: how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Very well.
1: Good. Well, um, I know we're getting the favourite part of Tasting Together for this evening, given that Valentine's Day is eking around the corner, and I'm sure some people are looking for some ideas of what to do to romance um, when it comes to food and wine. But right before that, we were talking about spiciness, which I guess is kind of like a nice, sexy, spicy Valentine's thing. Oh you. yeah,
2: you alluded you a... off the top of the show how spicy your Valentine's day is going to be, <laughs> Danny. How okay, spicy? Well... How spicy is your Valentine's going to be? Is
0: is are you a big fan of the heat? I'm not a huge fan of the heat. I'm I'm more of a you know mild barbecue kind of a heat. But if we're going chips, like I'm all in on the spicy Doritos and the spicy nacho cheese or. Bold barbecue, that kind of thing. I can handle that much heat, but any more than that and I'm out.
1: Well, we literally talked to Abhishek and he talked about how, you know, the level of spice doesn't necessarily determine the flavorfulness of a cuisine. So I think it is perfectly fine that Danny's spice levels um, are not, you know, obliterating the inside of his mouth.
0: Or the rest of my insides.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take a hard pivot because I'm sure everyone wants to talk about Wine and chocolate, and Andre, I believe you have compiled a report for us for this episode on what wines are best paired with chocolate.
2: It's the time of year when wine lovers turn to romance, but could one classic pairing ruin your Valentine's Day plans? Wine expert Edgar McSnobb tells Tasting Together that he believes pairing wine and chocolate makes the chocolate taste more bitter and clobbers any fruit flavors in wine. The only reason
0: to pair wine and chocolate, you hate your mouth. You hate chocolate, or you hate wine. It will surely ruin your Valentine's Day.
2: He suggests that you would be better off shelving the wine this year and grabbing a scotch to pair with your desserts, as the sweet notes and whiskey will make a great match to pastries, chocolate, and fruit-based desserts.
3: If you
0: really want to pair your Valentine's sweets like a pro, reach for an unpeated
2: scotch. Oh, hmm. McSnob says there's nothing to worry about with all classic pairings as wine and cheese continue to be soulmates, but this Valentine's Day, he suggests you skip the wine with your desserts. Andre Pru, tasting together. Man, that Edgar McSnob sounds like a really, really smart wine expert. I think we should all take his advice and not drink wine and chocolate and just stop doing that awful, godforsaken pairing.
1: <laughs> wow, Andre, wow. What? Wow. What? Wow, way to game your way into selling not wine and chocolate propaganda to people. Are you saying
2: together. that Edgar McSnob is not a real person? <laughs> Sounded familiar. Uh,
1: he had a familiar voice. It's Mid- almost like I've heard it before.
2: Oh, I thought the British accent was spot on. Right up there with Dick Van Dyke.
1: I, I mean, sure, Audrey, sure. But you know what? I feel like you are... um shooting yourself in the foot here because I believe that you have appeared on the Global Morning Show several times over the last few years talking about wine and chocolate.
2: Um, maybe.
1: So what changed your mind?
2: You know what? This comes from... Um... Being married to a pastry chef and actually spending a lot of time being more mindful. This is being me being serious now. Like that was I appreciate that you guys let me put that together. But it's one of these things where I think you just you see those classic pairings over and over again. And it sort of wrote that you just like you see this, it must be good, let's do it. And it just got to the point, like I'm a big fan of milk chocolate. I'm also a big fan of warm climate reds. And that's one of those pairings where it's just like I've been told over and over again, it's delicious, it's delicious, it's delicious. And the reason I like milk chocolate is because I don't like bitter chocolate. And I just remember tasting this really great. I think it was uh, a Montez Alpha Cabernet Sauvignon with a really nice piece of milk chocolate. I'm just like, this is making the wine taste like nothing. And it's making my chocolate taste bitter. It's taken the two things I was really looking forward to drinking and making them not taste very good. Now, I know this is something where you and I are likely going to unpack this, and Danny, we're going to unpack this as we go on, is that everybody tastes things differently because I've tweeted about this before and I've had a lot of blowback from people just talking about, like, no, this pairing is amazing! So, friendly reminder that for a lot of people that everybody's mouths work a little bit differently, but don't feel obligated to do it if it doesn't taste good. End rant.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mostly agree with you. I I, I feel uh, the same thing, like, I like chocolate. I like wine. I don't really like them together. I think keep them apart. Um, the only wine and chocolate pairing I think is any good. And this is even hard for me to say. It's not my favorite, but especially uh, on Valentine's Day, people tend to do this a lot with the chocolate covered strawberries and maybe some sparkling wine. That okay. is acceptable. Um, so you're
1: about to open the, the doors into what I want to say when it comes to pairing wine and chocolate is that, first of all, I think sparkling goes with almost everything. Yeah, so, and uh,
2: I think even Edgar McSnob would uh, agree that chocolate-covered strawberries and champagne is a delicious and classic pairing.
0: Yes,
1: okay. and then Thank I you. also... Yes, and I think uh, rosé is also very versatile to that regard. Um, and I also think the kind of chocolate matters. You talk yes. about milk chocolate on yes, and then you talk about chocolate-covered strawberries, Danny, and I will fully admit I don't actually eat a lot of sweeter chocolate. Like, I eat basically very, very dark chocolate. And maybe that may, I think, may positively, more positively impact pairing red wines with it. But I also think, like, what if the chocolate had floral and fruit notes in it? You know, what if it is chocolate with, like, you know, a little bit of rose petals or lavender or maybe it's a bonbon with fruit inside um, or coffee? Or what if the chocolate is intermingled with something like it's in a brownie or a molten lava cake. So there's something there's another medium in it, as opposed to just like the milk and the sugar. I think it truly brings it out in a different way. Um,
2: to be the pedantic one to go through a lot of this that you said dark chocolate with infusions and other flavors I'm on board with chocolate lava cake. I'm not a fan of with especially with red wine. I think sparkling wine is different, but I do think you hit on a very important point that not all chocolate is created equal.
1: I think what I was going to finish up was with an example of an uh, I think I had an Australian Shiraz with um this kind of actually I think it was like this kind of molten brownie-ish cake last year and mind you it was topped off with a little bit of fruit it helps because when you eat, you know when I eat the fruit and I drink the wine it actually does enhance the fruit notes in the wine and sure maybe there were some bitter notes that came out on both sides in the wine but I think for me it was more of like calling out those secondary notes that you taste in wine, the coffee notes, the earthy notes, the tobacco notes that you get when drinking a wine. It just pronounced it in a good way for me. So for me, it kind of added balance. And maybe it's just my palate, but I know um, in a lot of Asian sweet dessert pairings, we like pairing against bitter. Like if you look at Japanese tea ceremonies, you actually drink a very, very bitter and dense matcha with like a very small sweet little biscuit and you have that juxtaposition of bitter and sweet and maybe that's just something my palate is trained for I enjoy
2: yeah but I mean most of the bigger full-bodied red wines that we see as classic pairings are not sweet they have no perceptible sugar on the palate in the tea ceremony you're actually talking about a biscuit that has sweetness that has sugar sweetness
1: no 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 Pairing the wine, letting the wine's bitterness and, like, the more secondary notes come out against the sweetness of eating a chocolate cake. Oh,
2: I'm just thinking about the bitterness in, in chocolate. Like, it, I can't eat a piece of bitter chocolate on its own. Anyways, Danny, do you want to add any to the, anything to this since Maroki and I have monopolized <laughs> yeah. the
0: segment here? No, not at all. Not at all. No, I kind of... I, I do agree with Edgar McSnob for the most part. However, I do kind of like Maroki's take on this because, yeah, a dark chocolate... I think with some reds might work. So I think I'm something I might try. Oh, here's bitterness. I think the bitterness um, does make a difference because milk chocolate is just way too sweet in general um, for me anyway. Um, So, yeah, I think like, you know, maybe a 50 percent cocoa kind of chocolate. Maybe that could work.
1: So I guess our homework for everyone is that I might need to eat a little bit of milk chocolate and see. No, don't do it. (laughs) see if edgar McSnob is indeed correct (coughs) andre um and maybe andre needs to go learn to eat some bitter chocolate you know what danny you should also go eat some bitter chocolate and maybe some some chocolate brownie with some red wines
2: i actually have one pairing that i do love and i'm fairly convinced in the um, universality of the pairing and this is one that has made me Rethink a little bit about this, not for the most part. I mean, certainly not enough for me to take back my Edgar McSnob character, but some darker chocolate, so like a 70% cocoa chocolate, go fancy, get something with the infusions that Meroki was talking about, and pair it with a tawny pork. And you've got a sweet red wine with a little bit of tannic structure. And I find that that really brings out the best in both. So there's some additional homework if you really feel like being a good student.
1: And this way, every one of our listeners will have a few options to put together for the upcoming Valentine's Day. And you can let us know on Instagram, Andre at Andre Wine Review or myself, Maroki at Nine Ounces Please, and see which one worked out the best for you.
2: We'd love to hear that. So thanks again for listening. This has been Tasting Together with Maroki Tong and Edgar McSnob. Tune in again next week on 640 Toronto.